The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Moshe Brisky now presents his lecture, Seizing Life's Moments. So there was this anti-Semite walked into a bar. It was an Irish pub called Finn's. And he's looking around and he notices this elderly Orthodox Jewish man sitting at a nearby table. And it bothers him. What's a Jew doing in his place here? Decides he's going to have some fun. So he calls out to the bartender in this loud voice. And he says, a round of drinks on me for everyone in the bar except for that Jewish guy over there. Everyone in the bar is excited. They're getting a free drink. And the anti-Semite looks at the old Jew trying to get some response from him. And the old Jew does this to him. You know, he thought he would get some anger from him. Just gets a hello. He's all upset. Calls out, bartender, another round for everyone in in, in the bar. But from the top shelf, the good stuff, everyone but that Jew. Everyone in the bar is all excited again. And they get their free drinks. Looks at the Jew, hoping to see some anger. Goes over to the bartender and he says, is that guy nuts or what? He says, no, he's not nuts. He's the owner of the bar, (laughs) Mr. Finkelstein. There was this very popular theme song from the film The Lion King. It was called The Circle of Life. You're all familiar with the song. Great song. And it captures this very common perspective on human existence, which is that life is all about circles. Nature is circular. Day and night, the seasons of the year, the revolutions of the planet, there's birth, there's growth, there's deterioration, and there's death, and then there's birth all over again. It's all circular. And that's the way many cultures and religions look at life. Judaism, however, categorically rejects the notion of the circle of life. Indeed, the very first word of the Torah is beratious, in the beginning. We're all about beginnings. High Holidays is about Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, a new beginning. Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the month, a new start. Shabbat marks a total separation between the end of one week and the beginning of the next. Beginnings. To believe in beginnings means that you believe in the power of change. That nothing is fixed. Not your personality, not your lifestyle, not your destiny. There's always an opportunity for a new beginning. There's no rule of nature that says that our life has to stay the way it is, and you go round and round in this rotating circle of life. We believe in new beginnings. So if it's not a circle, how then do we see the cycles of life? The answer is we see them as a spiral. Each cycle brings you to a new level. Every year we celebrate the same traditions the same holidays as the years before, 
but with each rotation we strive for new heights. You're all familiar with the creation of Adam and Eve and the first commandment. It doesn't take long for man to mess up. And they eat from the tree. And the text of the Bible tells us that God calls out to Adam and he says this one word, Ayeko. That's the word that God calls out to Adam. Ayeko means, where are you? And the obvious question is, it's God. He's asking man, where are you? Is Adam able to play hide and go seek with God? Is he hiding somewhere that God doesn't know where he is? And he has to ask him, where are you? And our sages tell us that Ayeko was a rhetorical question on God's part. Adam, man, human being, where are you? What happened to you? Just a few hours ago, you were at the highest of heights, and where are you now? You're hiding like a frightened squirrel amongst the trees. And this rhetorical question of Ayeka is not only asked of Adam back then. It's a question asked of every human being at all times. God is calling out to us with that word, Ayeka. Where are you? Where are we? What are we doing with our lives? And where are we in relation to our potential? The tragedy of Adam was his failure to realize the incredible potential that he had. By contrast, two portions later, the Torah will introduce us to another human being who did realize his potential. His name was Abraham. God calls upon Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac. By this time of the story of Abraham, Abraham had already proven himself many a times. He had struggled with his father Terah, who was a notorious idol worshiper, and he actually sold idols. He had introduced monotheism to the world. He had been thrown into a fiery furnace by the wicked Nimrod. Many stories about Abraham by the time God comes to him and asks him to sacrifice his son. In fact, we're taught that prior to this, he had been challenged by God with nine other tests of faith. And the binding of Isaac was test number 10. So there's Abraham. He's facing the ultimate test of his devotion, that of taking the life of his only son from his wife, Sarah, the son who he loved so dearly, the son who he had put so much hope into. And he raises the knife to do the unfathomable when suddenly the voice of God in the form of an angel calls out, Avraham, Avraham, Abraham, Abraham. And the rest you know is history. He stops him from the binding and he promises him blessings. And you're going to be the father of a great nation. Now the question I'd like to ask is not on the story of the binding of Isaac. At a prior year, JLI retreat, we delved into the story of the binding of Isaac. I'm sure there was a recording somewhere. We did a Bible text class where we really went into the text of the story of the binding of Isaac. That's not today. If you like that idea of a Bible text class, tomorrow I'm going to be doing one on the story of Moses and the rock. What really happened there? That's tomorrow. What I would like to ask is, did the angel have a stutter? Avraham, Avraham. Why did you call his name twice? Why not just once? If he only called it once, Abraham wouldn't have answered. So the Medrash says this. 
that there are indeed two Abrahams. And the angel was referencing both Abrahams. You see, the Medrash says this, Avraham de la'ela. Avraham de la'ela means a heavenly Abraham. And there's Avraham de la Tata, there's an earthly Abraham. There's an image of Abraham that exists in heaven, the perfect Abraham. What God had in mind when he created the soul of Abraham. And then there's mortal Abraham, the physical man that's here on earth. And at that moment, at this tenth and final test, the ultimate test, something incredible happened. Avraham, Avraham, those two Abrahams, the earthly Abraham and the heavenly Abraham, coalesced and became one. At that moment, Abraham achieved the purpose for which he was created. The earthly Abraham matched up perfectly with the heavenly Abraham, bringing the Abraham of below into perfect harmony with the Abraham of above. What the Medrash is teaching us is something about our own lives. Before we are created, God has a clear image of who we can be, who we should be in this world. And that image always remains in heaven. So think about it. You've got a twin up there. There's an angelic representation of what you're capable of accomplishing and becoming in this life. And although most of us are not likely to pull it off to perfection the way Abraham did, our mission is nonetheless to bring those two versions of ourselves as close as possible to one another, to who we can be in potential and to who we actually are. Our mission in life is to bring the two as close as possible. Back in Poland in the 1800s, there was a young boy named Naftali. And Naftali went to Cheder, he went to school, he didn't really apply himself to his studies, he did very bad in school. And his teachers were frustrated, and they didn't know what to do with this Naftali boy. They couldn't control him, he wouldn't pay attention. And they send a letter to his parents, and they say, you know, it's a waste. You're sending him to a school, you're paying the tuition, but he's not really accomplishing anything here. So we suggest that maybe you pull him out of school, and send him to a trade school. Let him learn to be a tailor, a shoemaker. At least he'll accomplish something. He's not doing anything here. Parents get this letter. They're heartbroken. They're reading about their little Naftali that he's not accomplishing anything in school. And they start having this very difficult conversation. Maybe the teacher's right. Maybe he's not cut out for this. Maybe we should send him, eh, being a tailor would be a good job for him. I know someone that could mentor him, can teach him. They didn't know that Naftali was up in his bedroom listening into the conversation. And he's hearing his parents talk about him that maybe we should pull him out of school. He rushes into his parents' room and he breaks out crying and he says, please, don't give up on me yet. Give me another chance. I'll try harder. I'll try to concentrate. Don't give up on me just yet. The rest, as they say, is history. This young Naftali boy grew up to become known as the Nitziv. He's the author of some of the classic writings on the Torah, and he held the position of the dean of the largest yeshiva in Poland. 
At a celebration marking the completion of his magnum opus, he stood up and he told the story that I just told you about overhearing his parents and listening to what they were saying about sending him to become a tailor. And he then went on to describe what would have been had he slept through that night or had he let his parents go through on what they were discussing. He said, you know what? I probably would have been a good tailor. I would have been good at it. I probably would have been an honest tailor. I wouldn't have overcharged anybody. And if someone wasn't satisfied with the work I did, I wouldn't charge them, I would do it over again, because that's my nature. And I'm going to guess that I would have gone to services three times a day. I would have gone to shul morning, for, and then in the afternoon for mincha and evening services. I probably would have done a class at night between mincha and myrub, and I probably would have been charitable. I think I would have lived an ethical life, a moral life, and a Torah life. And after 120 years of my life here on earth, I would make my way to the heavenly world. And they would look at me and they would say, So, Naphtali, where are the books of the Talmud that you were supposed to write? And I would say, What are you talking about? I'm a Schneider, I'm a tailor. And they would say, and where are the tens of thousands of students that you were supposed to teach? And I would say, I, I, I take care of hems. I make pants bigger and smaller. And they would show me the potential naftali. And I wouldn't know what to answer. That's what could have been. Think about that moment, a nine-year-old kid lying in bed in a little house in Poland, overhearing a conversation. If he had let that moment pass unchallenged, what could have been lost? Not just to his life, but to an entire generation. To scholars today that delve into the writings of this young man. Who knows, my friends, who knows how far off track we are from our own mission, from our own purpose for which we were created from what we're capable of achieving in our own lifetime. I doubt too many of us in this room would be the Abraham of my prior story or the Nitziv of this story. But let there be no doubt about it, each of us have our own unique greatness, the potential that has been put into us for us to accomplish here, the talents that we were given, the gifts that we were given by God to invest into our lives and into this world. And that's why God calls out to us each and every day and he says, Ayeka, where are you? How close or how far are you from your angelic representation in the heavenly world of your potential? A century ago, there lived this great symphony conductor, an Italian maestro named Arturo Toscanini. He was one of the most acclaimed musicians of the late 19th and 20th century. He was known for his perfectionism in detail. Toscanini had a biographer who would interview him periodically over the years for a book he was writing on his life. And one evening he calls Toscanini and he tells him that he would be in town the next night and he wanted to know if he can come over to continue his series of interviews. And Toscanini says, tomorrow night won't work because I'm doing something special that will require absolute concentration. So he says, Maestro, what is it that you're doing? 
He says, there's a concert being played overseas. And I was always the conductor of that symphony orchestra, but I couldn't be there this year. So there's something new called shortwave radio. And I'm actually able to listen from my apartment to that symphony being played. And when I listen to it, I don't want any interruptions whatsoever. So the biographer says, you know, it would be my greatest pleasure to just watch you listen to someone playing your music. I won't say a word, I won't interrupt, but just to watch you engage in listening to this would be so special for me. He says, as long as you don't interrupt, you promise not to interrupt, you can come. So he comes over the next night, and he watches as Toscanini is listening to the symphony. It's unbelievable music he's listening to, and when it's all over, he asks Toscanini, news, so you enjoyed? And he says, no, that wasn't so good. That wasn't so good, it was perfect. He says, no. I wrote that for 120 musicians, including 15 violinists. There were only 14 violinists there playing. It's impossible, he's thinking to himself. He knows if there's 120 or 119 musicians, shortwave radio, but he doesn't say a word. He leaves. The next day, it's bothering him. So he finds out where the show took place and who was in charge of that theater, and he gives them a call, and he says, I have a question for you. How many musicians played last night? He says there was supposed to be 120, but one violinist couldn't make it. So he goes back to Tuscanini and he says, I have to ask this question. When you told me that there was 14 violinists and one was missing, I didn't believe you. It's impossible. And yet I found out today it was true. How, how can you possibly have known it? And Tuscanini says this, there's a big difference between you and me. You see, you're part of the audience. And the audience, everything sounds wonderful. We go to a Broadway play, we applaud, we give a standing ovation. We don't pick up on the little mistakes. You are the audience. You listen, you enjoy, you applaud it. But I'm the conductor. I wrote that music. I wrote every note of that symphony. And I knew that the notes of one violin player wasn't there. And so it wasn't perfection for me. I share this story with you because we're all different. We each make our own music, and yet we're all part of this great symphony called Israel, the Jewish people. And if we don't contribute the special notes that we are capable of, the distinctive notes that were written by the conductor for us as individuals, then there's something missing from the whole. And it makes a huge difference to the conductor of the world who knows our potential, who knows the music, who knows the instruments and the notes that we're supposed to play. I want to take you to the winter of 1946. There's a young man by the name of Shimon. He found himself in the DP camp in Germany. He was a survivor of numerous death camps. Shimon had committed to memory the brutal faces and the names of these Nazi tormentors. Never forget what those monsters did to him and to six million of his brothers and sisters. One day, this American rabbi who served as a chaplain of that DP camp asked Shimon if he would be prepared to join him on a very difficult and challenging trip. And he explains to him that the United States Army had learned 
that there's a castle in Bavaria that the Nazis had designated as a museum to the extinct Jewish race. It was there that they had sent and stored masses shipments of Judaica, books, religious articles that they looted from Jewish homes and synagogues all over Europe. And their idea was to build a museum so that the world could know that there once was a Jewish people and we did the world a favor by getting rid of them once and for all. And the United States Army wants to send someone to see indeed does this exist and what's there. Being that this chaplain was an expert on Jewish matters, the army had asked him to inspect the contents of the castle. But he didn't want to go alone. So he asked Shimon, would you come with me? Shimon seemed like this wise, strong-willed young man, and he agrees to go. And they travel to Bavaria, and upon entering the castle, the two men gasp at what they absorbed was the enormity of what they saw. It was this massive warehouse filled from floor to ceiling with all types of Judaica, Torah scrolls, piers of tefillin, talasim, paintings, menorahs, seder plates, candlesticks, endless piles upon piles upon piles. An airy silence came over them as they contemplated the ghosts of the absent owners of all these items. The proud young bar mitzvah boy who would never recite Kiddush on that Kiddush cup. The beautiful bride who would never see the flames of her candlesticks. The elderly grandfather whose tender kiss would no longer touch the velvet Torah cover. All of those vibrant and promising lives turned into ashes of memories. Yet there they are on this day, seeing each of these items. They walked along. Shimon and the chaplain started touching the items just to put their fingertips on these holy, sacred items. And at one point, they separated, each going to a different part of this particular warehouse. Shimon is at one end of the castle, and suddenly he hears the chaplain crying out from the other end. He runs towards the stream, and he finds the chaplain on the floor. His head is bowed, tears are streaming down his face, Without saying a word, the chaplain hands Shimon this object in his hand. It was a simple prayer book. Nothing extraordinary, a prayer book. What about that siddur brought about this strong emotional response from the chaplain? At that point, the chaplain points to the inscription inside. The owner of that siddur scribbled on the front page of the prayer book. I am begging whoever finds this sitter to do whatever you can to avenge the deaths of the Jews of Europe. It was signed by a woman whose name Shimon did not recognize. But the chaplain did. As he cried to Shimon, my sister, that was written by my sister. Although the chaplain was fortunate to have left Europe before the war, his sister had remained, and he had been desperately seeking news of her, but found nothing until that moment. Amongst tens of thousands of items, somehow he finds the siddur that his sister owned with his sister's handwriting. The woman had apparently written those words in desperation just before her death. 
her final scribbled words read, They are coming. The murderers are among us. I hear them in the next house. Please avenge our deaths. The chaplain then let out a cry of his sister's name that pierced Shimon's heart. It was at that moment that Shimon felt that he had been summoned by the heavens. And he decided then and there that he would dedicate the rest of his life to providing the justice that the blood of this woman and six million others were crying out for. You know the name of this man. He went by Simon Wiesenthal, the courageous Nazi hunter who tracked down more than a thousand evil Nazis of the Holocaust. Indeed, the title of Simon Wiesenthal's first book was The Murderers Among Us, from the scribbling of the chaplain's sister. Ladies and gentlemen, throughout our lives, we are sent these signals, these prompts from heaven calling upon us to embark on a certain mission, a mission that is specific to our abilities, to our talents, to our resources, to our influences. The heavenly image of ourselves is beckoning the earthly image of ourselves to synchronize our deeds to what we call our tafkid, our purpose, our mission. Now, we sense it. We're inspired by it, but then quite often we shrug it off and nothing happens. Another missed opportunity to make a difference, to make our special impact. Why? Why does that happen? Why don't we step up to the plate when opportunity knocks? I think part of the answer to that question can be found in another biblical story of the greatest public servant the Jewish people ever had. Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, who took us out of Egypt. Moses, who gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai. Moses, who led us for 40 years in the wilderness and turned a family of slaves into a nation of princes. Let's go back to the story of how Moses came to take that job. He meets God at a burning bush. What was his reaction, his initial reaction when God called out to him? God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to take my people out of Egypt. Moses says, Mi anoichi. Who am I? Me? You're talking about me? You want me to take the people out of Egypt? Yeah, I'm the wrong guy. Mi anoichi. Who am I? God comes back and says, Moses, I want you to take the job. Moses says, I can't. I'm handicapped. I have a speech impediment. I can't speak clearly. A leader has to be able to communicate. I can't communicate. No one understands me when I talk. A leader has to be able to get up and motivate and and inspire. I can't do that. You have the wrong guy. I can't do it. And God will keep coming back to Moses, take the job. And Moses says, I'm sorry, I can't take the job. Why now? My brother, I have an older brother, Aaron. What's he going to feel? He's going to be insulted that his younger brother was given this, this task. Choose our own. I don't want to humiliate my brother. I can't do it. The commentaries tell us that this discussion between Moses and God at the burning bush was not a one-hour discussion. It was seven days. Seven days Moses saying, I can't take the job. Seven days God says, take the job. You have to wonder this. Why didn't God respond differently on day one? Here's the simple conversation the way it could have been. Moses says, I have a speech impediment. I I can't do it. You need a leader that can inspire. Moses says, Aaron, my brother. And God says, 
No problem. I'm God. Anyone remember the old I dream of genie? I don't want to age you here. Da-da-da-da, blink, and right, and it changes. I'm God. Start speaking, Moses. No more speech impediment. You know, the words flow out of your mouth like Shakespeare. Moses says, who's Shakespeare? God says, that's another story. He's God. He says he has a speech impediment. You're God. You can heal it. You worried about Aaron? No problem. There's going to be another position. It's called high priest. Cohen God, Aaron's going to be high priest. Oh, by the way, Moses, we have something called FaceTime. Look at the screen right here. Here's your brother Aaron in Egypt. Aaron, will you be upset if I appoint your younger brother to be leader? You'll get the high priest position. Oh, Aaron says to Moses, that will be wonderful. Case closed. He's God. He could respond so differently. Instead, he enters into this debate for seven days with Moses when he could have responded in 30 seconds. And perhaps the answer is that God is teaching us, you and me and every human being, a lesson for all time. You don't have to be perfect to take the job. If God would have done that, he would have cemented into all of our existence that only perfect people take God's jobs. No, Moses, with your speech impediment, I'm asking you to take on this mission. Because you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be the best. You just need one thing. God says, I will be with you. If you have the faith that God is with you, then you go out and you do the job the best you can. Perfect? We're not perfect. The best we can. And with that, Moses takes the job, and he takes the people out of Egypt, and he gives us the Torah, and he becomes the greatest leader of all time. And here's the clincher. When God first appears to Moses at the burning bush, do you remember how he calls out to him? Moshe... Moshe. Remember how we began with Abraham, Abraham? Again, God repeats his name twice. Moshe, Moshe. There's a Moshe above, a Moshe below. This is your moment, Moses, to bring the two together. To make the great Moses of earth coalesce and be one with the Moses of potential. Two Abrahams, two Moses, two Chaims, two Bernards, two Toms, two Miriams, two Adasas, two Shirleys. There is a heavenly image of each and every single one of us. And then there is the way we are. So when we're presented with an opportunity to make a difference, and we think that it's beyond our capacity, we shouldn't stop and think, maybe this is not for me. We should think, maybe this is my moment. Seize that moment. Maybe this is the type of challenge that I've shied away from from the past, but it's time I go out and take it. I'll take the job because if I don't, who knows what I'll be passing up. You remember the story of Purim and we read in the book of Esther how Mordechai visits his cousin, Queen Esther, in the palace and begs her, go to King Ahasuerus and save your brethren, save the Jews, literally save them from annihilation. And then he says to her, Umiyodea, who knows? This may be the moment, the very moment for which God put you here in this palace. And if you say no, 
If you turn me down, that's fine. That's your free choice. It will be someone else. God will save the Jewish people. But are you someone else? You will be lost. Your tafkid, your mission will have been lost. What does it mean, be lost? You'll fade into obscurity. Little girls will not be dressing up like Queen Esther. The Megillah won't be called Megillah Esther. Maybe it'll be Megillah Sarah. Megillah Sherna. Who knows who it may be? Whoever God will pick, select next. But this is your moment. You need to make a choice. Seize the moment and achieve immortality. Decline it and you'll just fade into insignificance. And we all know how Queen Esther chose, and it is indeed Queen Esther, Megillus Esther, and our children still dress up like Queen Esther. We're constantly being presented with such moments, pivotal moments, decisive moments that beckon us to do something meaningful and significant. Whether it's to elevate our own lives, to elevate the lives of our family members, to strengthen our community, to help an individual. And very often when those opportunities arise, our reaction is always, who, me? You're talking about me? Just like Moses at the burning bush. To which God says, I appreciate your humility. In fact, I love humility. But this is not the time for it. This is a moment for you to step up to the plate and do your thing. Remember the comedian Jay Leno once said that in a poll taken and said that one in four people say that they would donate a kidney to a complete stranger. He says, really? 90% of people won't let a stranger merge the lane in front of them when in traffic. Right. But donate a kidney to a stranger? Oh, yeah. Why? Because it's hypothetical. It's a hypothetical poll. I'm in freeway traffic. You want to cut me? Israel. No way. You're not getting in front of me. Donate a kidney? Sure. Yeah, I would. Yeah. In theory, we're all ready and willing to do many wonderful things. But when it comes to practical action, even the simplest action, the question is, where are we? Ayeka. And sometimes it's that simple deed that can make all the difference in the world. The Lubavitcher Rebbe once said, the very fact that you encounter someone who's in trouble or in need means that in some way you can help that person. Otherwise, why would this awareness have entered your world? If that opportunity has come on your radar screen, then that itself is proof positive that it's your moment. It may be a turning point in your life or in the other person's life, but that moment is there for you to either shine or to shun. One of the many scenic hiking trails in Israel is called the Yehudiya Hiking Trail, which is, has these steep climbs, and it's really only meant for experienced hikers. One day, this 19-year-old girl named Plia and her 16-year-old brother named Yisrael decided they want to go on this hike. They were doing good until they came to this very steep point where you had to climb straight up. Yisrael, the younger of the two, braved the tall climb. But his older sister couldn't do it. She was too frightened. She was too scared. And her brother tried to coach her, put your foot here, put your foot there. That's how I did it. But she was just way too frightened. She couldn't do it. And she yells up to her brother up above, 
just go get help. Get help. I can't make it up. I'm stuck here. So he runs to the end of the trail, and there indeed is a sign with an emergency number. He calls the emergency number, and a few minutes later, two rangers show up, and he says, my sister, she's by the place where you got to climb straight up. She can't do it. Is she hurt? No, she's not hurt. She's just frightened. She's afraid. Not injured, not in, but just afraid. All right, they take the stretcher with these chains, with these poles, with this pulley, and they go to the particular place. He's waiting there at the end of the trail, the brother. A little while later, the rangers return. There's his sister, Plia. She's smiling. She's joking around. All great. So the younger brother says to the sister, so what did it feel like to be in that stretcher for them to use the pulleys to get you up? And she says, no, I was able to climb up. What do you mean you were able to climb up? You told me you couldn't do it. She said, I told them I couldn't do it. But with these two guys, they came. The taller one jumped down, stood right behind me, and said, listen, we can take you up with the stretcher, and that's fine. But I know you can do this. I know you can climb it yourself. So I said, but I'm scared. So he said, look at me. Ani choma, think of me as a wall. I'm a wall. Tali, climb, go up. I'm right here protecting you. Nothing's going to happen to you. But you make the climb. And with that, she said, I felt totally secure with this guy right behind me. And I climbed the wall. My friend's life is a hiking trail. And often, the hiking trail can be difficult. And sometimes people get stuck, and they're afraid, and they're in a crisis, whether it's a financial crisis, a health crisis, and they become overcome with despair, and they're frozen with fear, and they cannot cope with reality. We need to be that Israeli park ranger that stands behind our friends or our community Members, and we say, Ani choma, I'm a wall. Tali, go up, lean on me, forge ahead, I'm here for you. You're not alone. I'm here to support you, to catch you, don't be afraid. Do we even realize that something like that for another person in crisis could mean the difference between coping and giving up? So when we have this opportunity to do a mitzvah, when a good deed comes your way, seize the moment. When you feel inspired to take on a new mitzvah in life, you go to some of these talks and you listen and you're inspired and you say, I want to do something. And then you get back home and you're debating, how much did I really want to do it? Seize the moment. You're invited to take a new class, but at the same time, there's a good series on TV Oh, there's a great game, and I don't want to miss the game. And you're debating it. Seize the moment. There was once this rabbi in New York who during the intermediate days of the holiday, if you're familiar with the holidays of both Sukkot and Passover, they start with two holidays, and then we have the intermediate days called Chal Hamoed. Chal Hamoed is part of the holiday. It's still Sukkot, and it's still Passover, but there are days that you could do work. You know, you can drive in your car, you can go to places, you can do things, you can get on the phone. So it doesn't have the strictness of the first two days, but it's still part of the holiday. Now, growing up in New York, we had this tradition. 
the tradition was that during those days of Chal HaMoed, we would go on outings, we would go on trips. So we looked forward to Chal HaMoed more than anything else. We were talking earlier about Coney Island, if you remember. Well, Coney Island was the hot spot to go to if you were in Brooklyn. You would go every Chalamot Sukkot, every Chalamot Pesach, that's where you would go. How many of you know where Coney Island is? Hey, we got a handful. How many of you like the cyclone? Wonder Wheel? Come on. Okay. We didn't have Disneyland or Disney World in Brooklyn, okay? We had Coney Island. Anyway, so there is this father. He has a family of 11. And he's going broke with these Halamot outings. They're not cheap. You got to take. It turns out that particular holiday was the holiday of Passover's Halamot Pesach. Two of his children were away. He only had nine at home. But he's got to keep nine kids busy for Halamot. Try to figure out what you're going to do. You take nine kids to Disney World. I mean, you need to be, uh, bring more than a gold credit card to get in. He comes up with an idea. He tells his kids, guys, get in the van. We're going away today, but it's a surprise. I'm not telling you where. Okay, now you're, you got your excitement going. Nine kids pile into the van. He's driving on the Belt Parkway in New York. On the Belt Parkway, you begin to see signs that say Kennedy Airport. The kids are freaking out. We're going on a plane. We're going out. Wow, dad's taking us on a plane this year. Wow, it's unbelievable. Where are we going? Maybe to Florida. Maybe to California. And the dad says, no, we're not going on a plane. But the sign says Kennedy Airport. And he continues. Anytime Kennedy Airport to the right, he goes to the right. Kennedy Airport to the left, he goes to the left. He's following the signs to Kennedy Airport. In fact, he's pulling off at the sign that says Kennedy Airport. Where are we going, dad? You'll see. How many of you have been to Kennedy Airport in the last, uh, I would say, 15 years? There's something called the air train. You know what the air train does? It takes you around the airport. He tells his kids, we're going on the air train. Now, the air train is used to go to terminals. But no kids. He gives each of his kids a piece of paper and a pen. He says, this is what we're doing today. Each time we go around the airport, there's going to be a competition, a contest. First round. How many of you can find planes that have on it the flag of a country? And they go around, and each kid is looking and looking at the planes and seeing how you wrote this one down. And the next round, see who has a name of a country in the name of the airline, like American Airlines, name of a continent. You can put that down. Each time the, plane, the, the air train is going around, he gives them another competition. And the kids are actually having a good time. Pretty smart of the dad, came up with this plan, pretty free. Air train doesn't cost money other than the parking for the van, but not bad. He's keeping the kids occupied. Okay. At one point, the door opens of the train and a pilot gets on. This tall, distinguished-looking man in his cap and his uniform, he boards the train. The train is pretty full. Father immediately shows one of the kids, get up, get up. He's your elder. You make room for the elder to sit down. The pilot notices and he says, no, 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 I've been sitting for quite a few hours. I would rather stand. And he takes a look at this father with the, all these guys, and he says, school trip? Class trip? No. All the kids? All mine. You got nine kids? I actually got 11, two aren't here. All yours, you collect kids? <laughs> so where are you guys heading today, the pilot says? Father says, eh, not really going anywhere. So what are you doing on the uh, air train? We're going around. Around? 
yeah, seven times, we've done seven. Seven times around. Why are you going around? And he begins to explain Chalamoid Pesach, <laughs> what Passover is all about, Exodus from Egypt, intermediate days, kids are off from school, they want to go on an outing. What's with the strings that some of your boys have hanging out of the pants? And he explains 613 commandments. What's with the thing on their head? What? Yarmulke, he explains. So he's explaining holidays and sits us all to this, this man. The pilot then says to the father, you know, I've been a pilot for more than 20 years. My schedule is that I fly for three weeks and then I get a week off. But even during that week off, I don't get to spend too much time at home because my last flight ends in Australia. I live in Denver. So by the time I get home and I have a few things to do, I'm already off on the next, the next tour of duty. It's a hard life. My wife left me years ago because I was never home for her and for the kids, and I don't blame her. But you want to know what's so ironic, he says to this father? When I fly my plane, I know exactly my point of departure and where I'm headed. We have this computer in that cockpit that has the entire world, the entire globe in there. And I could program it to take this plane to every airport in the world if I want to. To the inch. I have the whole globe in my computer, but when I finish that flight, I have nowhere to go. No family, no children, just an empty hotel room. That's all I get after my three weeks. And although I'm always going somewhere, in reality, I'm going nowhere. And here I'm watching you and your family. You're going around and around and around. You're going nowhere. And yet you're going somewhere. You're going somewhere very special. You live by your traditions and your values and you place your family above all else and you have goals and destinations in sight. For a family that's just going in circles, wow, are you going places. And he tells the kids, you have something so beautiful here. Take care and enjoy your holiday and embrace your traditions. And this rabbi watches as the pilot steps off the train, walks down the platform, this lonely figure with his shoulders straight, carrying his small suitcase. And he turns to his children, who are happy and secure, a living testimony to the beauty of traveling through life with a clear idea of what your destination is and how to get there. A wise man once said, some people don't know where they want to go, but complain a lot about not getting there. So let's not get trapped in the circle of life. Rather, let's embrace new beginnings, new opportunities of life, the new opportunities that are constantly placed before us by God Almighty. This is not just a prescription for a life of substance, but it's a prescription for a life of happiness, for true joy. You ask people what their goal in life is, and many will tell you, my goal is to be happy. We always put that number one. But it really doesn't work that way. Because happiness itself is not a goal. 
It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of a life with purpose. It was Henry David Thoreau who once said, happiness is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more it will elude you. But if you turn your attention to other things, it will come and sit softly on your shoulder. That's how it works with happiness. It's when you're not actively pursuing it and you're busy with matters of substance that it will find you. It will find you in ways you might have never dreamed possible. Each and every day that we read the Akedah, the binding of Isaac in our prayers, we need not focus how we can bring our earthly selves. We need to focus how we can bring our earthly selves in sync with our heavenly selves. We need to set forth goals that will enable us to achieve that synchronicity. Goals that will invite more of those faithful mitzvah moments into our lives. Goals that will ignite and galvanize our potential, putting us on a path to a happier, more fulfilling life. A number of years ago, there was a woman who lived in Ramat Gan, Israel. I'll call her Mrs. Lerner. Mrs. Lerner had a job working for this company, which basically enabled her to support her entire family. And she felt very fortunate, because economic times in Israel at the time of the story was very difficult, and she was lucky to have a job. The problem that she had was that she was three months pregnant. And the big question was, would she still have a job waiting for her after she had her baby? At that time, maternity leave in Israel was not what it is today. And therefore, she was concerned. If she tells them, I have to take off for some time for giving birth or for caring for a child, they'll hire someone else and she wouldn't have a job. To make matters worse, her husband had been unemployed for six months. So she was supporting the family. This job was everything. To make matters even worse, her brother was just laid off, and she was supporting her brother as well. So she's the only breadwinner not only of her family, but she has her brother to care for. And this anxiety was really getting to her. And she decides, I know it's early in this pregnancy, but I can't go on with this fear in my mind. I'm going to have to find the time to go into the boss's office and to talk. And hopefully he'll respond positively. One afternoon, the owner of the company, we'll give him a name, Mr. Fisher, he came by the workplace and he was having lunch in the cafeteria while all the other employees were taking their lunch breaks. And he happens to sit at the table where Mrs. Lerner is sitting. And she says, this is the best opportunity I'm ever going to get. And so she finds the courage to broach the subject. She was very nervous. And after explaining the situation about her and the pregnancy and her husband and the brother, he wasn't ready to commit to anything. Yeah, I hear you all think about it. And he changed the subject. Moved on. She was very disturbed by that, but what could she do? Other people join the table, conversation switches, and they're all starting to speak about their past histories, where they were born, where they're from. When Mrs. Lerner mentioned that she was originally from the East Flatbush neighborhood in Brooklyn, Mr. Fisher suddenly pipes into the conversation, and where in East Flatbush did you live? What street did you live on? What did your father do for a living? 
What did your grandfather do for a living? What shul did they go to? All types of questions. After she was quizzed by Mr. Fisher about all these questions about her life and these floppish and her father and her grandparents, Mr. Fisher stands up and leaves the room. He comes back a few minutes later, his eyes are red, and you can see that he was crying. And he says, I need to tell you something. Many years ago, there were two electricians who lived in the same neighborhood in East Flopish. One of these electricians was a union member and worked for a very large company and was very successful. The other was a non-union member, and he constantly struggled to make a living. And he would scrape together odd jobs here, odd job there to try to put it together. These two men attended the same synagogue in East Flopish, and they became friends. They would walk home together on the way home from shul. One day, tragedy struck. The poor non-union electrician had a massive heart attack. And within days, he passed away. When the other electrician came to the house for shiva to pay condolences to the mourners, he couldn't help but notice the poverty of the home. And then he was a little bit nosy. And he walked into the kitchen. And he saw how empty it was. The cupboards were empty. The refrigerator was empty. He didn't stop to ask. He went right to the supermarket and came back with dozens of bags of food, filled the refrigerator, filled the cupboards, made sure there was food, not just for every day of Shiva. He wouldn't stop coming. A week after Shiva, when people stopped caring and stopped visiting, he would come with these bag loads of foods. He would see to it that the bakery would deliver fresh bread and danishes every morning. He continued this for months. A couple of months after the tragedy, the widow calls this electrician who's been paying these visits with food and says that her basement is filled with all these electrical tools and supplies that she has no need for. And being that you're an electrician, maybe you can do something with it. So he goes down to the basement, and sure enough, he sees this total mess with supplies, with all different electrical items, but not organized at all. And he asks permission if he can come by every night and visit the basement so he can organize. And he begins to make some order, put things in different boxes. And after weeks and weeks of doing this, he puts out notice to all electricians that there's going to be this sale of electrical parts and know that the funds you give will go help a widow and her family. And on a given Sunday, electricians came from all over New York. And everything was purchased up. And this man raised thousands of dollars and gave that to the widow. The workers sitting in this cafeteria in Ramad Ghana listening to Mr. Fisher tell the story. He then turns to Mrs. Lerner and he says, the electrician who organized that sale, who brought food for months to that widow and her children, was your grandfather, Svi Ackerman. And I was one of the six orphans who watched him do it every single day. It was my father who died at such a young age. And my brothers and my sisters, we were just kids then, but none of us ever forgot the kindness of your Zaidi and what he did for our mother and for all of us during those sad and painful days. Mrs. Lerner, make no mistake about it. You will always have a job with this company.
And tomorrow morning, I would like for you to please have your brother and your husband come to my office because they will be working here as well. That night, a tearful Mrs. Mrs. Lerner went home and wrote a letter to her grandfather, who was still alive. All it said was, thank you, Zadie. I'm so proud to be your granddaughter. A man in Brooklyn, New York, sees the despair of a family, decides to seize the moment and to do something about it. And it shows up later, years later, decades later, in Ramat Gan, Israel. That's the way special moments of our lives turn the axis of our world and have a way of repaying themselves over and over and over again. So the next time the opportunity for a mitzvah, for an act of kindness presents itself to you, don't pass it up. It may just be your moment, the moment God is giving you to shake up your world and to make your impact to achieve your own cosmic notoriety rather than fade into insignificance. Make it count. Give of yourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally, monetarily. And if you do that, suddenly one day, you'll look over your shoulder and you'll see a butterfly sitting there. And happiness will come your way. Not because you went looking for it, but because you set goals of substance and went about pursuing them with energy, with focus, and with enthusiasm. So go out there and seize the moment. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.